You're listening to BiblioAsia Plus, a podcast produced by the National Library of Singapore. At BiblioAsia, we tell stories about Singapore's past, some unfamiliar, others forgotten, all fascinating. Hi everyone, my name is Jimmy Yap and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of BiblioAsia, a publication the National Library of Singapore. It's not commonly known, but Singapore used to be a major centre for recording music in Southeast Asia. One of the earliest recordings made here dates back to 1903. Before 1960, over 10,000 local recordings were made in Singapore. And by the end of the 1960s, we had hundreds of labels here, catering to every musical taste. With us today to tell us more about Singapore's record industry is Ross Laird. Ross was formerly a sound archivist with Australia's National Film and Sound Archive. He was awarded NLB's Lee Kong Chen Research Fellowship in 2010. He's also the author of From Kurunchung to Sinyao, a new book that looks at the history of Singapore's recording industry. Hi Ross, welcome to Asia. Hello. Um, first of all, Maybe in one sentence, can you tell us what exactly is your book about? Well, it tries to fill out some of the background in that history you just mentioned about the Singapore industry, the record industry in Singapore. The, the first recording in Singapore that we have, that we are aware of, you know, happened in 1903. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, that was definitely the very first recording in Singapore. Oh, it was definitely the first It was uh, done by Fred Gaysberg, an an American actually, but he mainly worked in Britain from the 1890s up until his death in, I don't know when, the 1980s or so. Um, Who did he work for? And he he worked for EMI, or originally for the gramophone company. That's HMV to most people, which later became part of EMI. And he was uh, originally what they called a recording expert, which was like a sound engineer, what we'd call a sound engineer today. And his job was to travel around to various places, usually remote places at that time, like Egypt or somewhere, and do recordings for the record company. And on that basis, that's why he was sent out to, not just to Singapore, but to Asia. That first recording expedition you're asking about was actually the f- not just the first recordings in Singapore, but the first recording ex- expedition which ever came to Asia. Oh. That's why we know they're the first recordings in Singapore, because there was no, no one did any earlier commercial recordings. There were things like anthropological recordings made on cylinders of uh, tribes in Borneo or somewhere like that, but they were not intended for commercial release. Right, right. So these 1903 recordings were the first attempt by any record company in the world to make recordings in Asia, and they made recordings on the same expedition in Japan and China, Thailand, Burma, as well as Singapore. EMI's reason for doing all these recordings was was so that they could then record the music and sell it to these different markets subsequently? Well, actually, the music, ironically, the music was the secondary thing. The main thing they were interested in was selling their gramophones. Ah, of course. But in order to do that, they felt that in order to do that to the local people, they needed music or recordings in their own languages and of things which they identified with in their culture, you know, like the Malay opera, for example. Right. 
and that and that way people would buy the records and then of course they needed a gramophone to play them on but the gramophone was the expensive item so they actually tried to make the records relatively cheap to encourage people to invest in that and then they would buy a gramophone the gramophone company as it was at that time was one of the big multinational record companies uh, they started in in uh, in london but then they gradually spread out all the way through europe and then through the middle east and just just like a ripple in a pond and and then after you know 5 or 10 years they were reaching the limits of what they'd already done in the areas closest to london and they were starting to look at markets ever further away and that's how they got the idea to come out to to singapore and, and other parts of asia how did singapore end up being a sort of center for recording uh, for recording music in south east well, asia it's like they say about real estate it's location 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 in in, in what sense was that i'm sure as your listeners realize that singapore is very centrally located when it comes to southeast asia uh, and in fact, if you look at the way this recording expedition that Gaisberg did to other parts of Asia, including East Asia, Singapore was really the focal point. He came initially to Singapore, even though he didn't record here straight away. But this was the first port in Southeast Asia they came to. And from there, they took a ship to Japan. And then they worked their way back through China, through Thailand, and then back to Singapore. And then when they came back is when they made the recordings here in Singapore. So the whole thing was planned logistically based on Singapore as a base kind of thing. So that you know, shows you that Singapore from that point onwards, and, and this was the case throughout the period when Singapore was a recording centre, was kind of a logistics hub for the region. Now what were some of the key trends um, in, the, in the recording industry that impacted the industry? Well, like any industry, it's always evolving. When Gosberg's first expedition came here in 1903, it was a fairly primitive process. The equipment, for example, was very heavy and difficult to move around. Again, this is why they chose places like Singapore as a logistics hub, because in those days, it's not like now where you can record anywhere because the equipment's very easy to move around and you can even carry it in your hand. Back in those days, you needed a ship to, to bring it into the place where you were going to do the recording, and then it would take all day to set it up in somewhere, some place you were going to do the actual recordings in. And it took a lot of work. So basically, they couldn't just travel around recording here and there. They went to one place, like Singapore, and then they would get artists from that region to come to Singapore to all record in the one place. So one change, you know, the, an example of a sort of change you're asking about is gradually as the recording equipment became lighter and more portable, they could actually be more flexible in the way that they moved around the region. And although Singapore was still a central logistics hub, there were recordings made in other places as well. A place had uh, something unique about it, like Bali with its gamelan music, then they would make the effort to go to that place and record the artists there. Were these recordings done in recording studios? Yes, they actually called them recording studios in the few press reports there are that describe early recording in Singapore. But they were not studios in the sense that we would think of today, where you think of a soundproof room specifically custom-made for the purpose of recording with a stack full of recording equipment and electronics. 
was nothing like that at all. It was a very simple uh, kind of uh, just a hotel room sometimes or a room in a house which they'd rented, the, co the record company had rented. And at most they would hang some curtains on the windows to keep out traffic noise from outside. But there was no, uh, in other ways it was no different to an ordinary room in a hotel or a house. And the reason for that was uh, in those early days, though, even though recordings were made in Singapore regularly over the years, they were only actually recording for a short period each year, maybe a month or two each year. That would mean that for most of the year, the room would be empty and unused. There was no point in having a permanent setup like that. Later on, they did have recording studios, but not until the late 1940s. Uh, and in the early 1950s, the first air-conditioned recording studio was set up by EMI in McDonald House. We were talking about something like 80 years. I mean, your, your book covers something like 80 years of, of Singapore's recording industry. Yeah. But what were some of the key turning points in, in that period? Basically, recording started here in 1903. At first, there were recordings done here maybe every two or three years. But by the 1920s, you were having recordings done every year. And then that, that's when the industry really started to become more permanently located in Singapore. There were many uh, record companies based here. And as I said, the record company was much more consistent in the 1920s and 1930s. But of course, that all came to a huge halt in 1942. So, and during the Japanese occupation, there was no recording done in Singapore at all. Not even by the Japanese? No. They did import some recordings from China, which were actually pressed in Japan for the local market. Uh, they were Chinese performers, not local performers. And there was absolutely no recording done here. The Japanese didn't seem interested in promoting or continuing that kind of activity. What happened after the war, though? Did well, that's the next thing I was going to say, was that the, the other effect of the war was, even after the war was over, Singapore was relatively devastated by the occupation, and it took several years to get back to recording activity resuming. I think in 1945, when the Japanese surrendered, uh, starting recording was not the first thing on people's minds. They'd a lot of people just barely survived and they're more interested in getting their lives back together and more basic things like getting jobs and uh, finding something to eat and things like this. These were the, obviously, you know, after a period like that, these were much higher concerns than going out and buying records. So it wasn't until about 1947 that recording activity resumed in Singapore. So you can see the war not, not only had a, an effect in the breaking up that continuity of recording activity, but it even affected the post-war period for several years as well. What about some of the technical turning points? Well, on the technical side, I did mention earlier about how the type of equipment in use uh, gradually evolved, but um, after the war, there were even greater changes because whole new technologies came into play, such as... Uh, well, I should go back a bit. Uh, in the 1920s, electric recording came in. If Before that, it had been the acoustic recording. Sorry, you, you, I, I'm not a recording engineer. What's the difference between an electric recording and an acoustic recording? Well, an acoustic recording means you sing into a horn, which then funnels the sound on 
through the needle onto a, a, a master disc, and that's used to press the records. But the sound is all generated simply by the strength of the voice. Uh, electric recording means the, the sound is enhanced like by the use of microphones. So this changed the quality of the recording. Uh, some people claim that if an engineer was very skilled, he could make an acoustic recording sound very lifelike and some rec acoustic recordings are better than others as a result. But generally speaking, electric recording picks up the voice more clearly and accurately. And, you, and so you could say this was a, the reason for introducing that was to improve the quality of the recording process. And in fact, I think that's generally true. By the late 1920s and the 1930s, the quality of a recording was quite high. But in fact, what's, what reduced the playback uh, quality, you could say, is, is that the, the, the gramophones which were used to play records were still rather primitive. And they really couldn't get out all the sound that is in the grooves. It's only now that we have modern equipment and we can play older recordings and that we can hear the recording more clearly and fully the way it was actually recorded. That's fascinating. So we can actually hear the records better now than, than people 20 year or 70 well, years ago. Again, it takes some school as a sound engineer, but someone who has that school, who knows how to deal with older recordings, whether they're acoustic or electrical, he can process the sound in such a way that it, instead of just filtering out the noise, they actually retain the full range of the sound that's in the grooves. And the sound quality is actually quite good, as I mentioned. Very interesting. And then further developments, like electrical recording started in the mid-1920s. Um, in the 1950s, you had tape coming in. And by then, they'd also introduced vinyl recordings. So the, the early shellac, fragile, heavy recordings that were re produced before the war started to be phased out in the 1950s. They didn't disappear straight away because a lot of people still had equipment to play those recordings and they didn't have a modern record player. So they continued to make 78s for until the end of the 50s, but uh, up until about 1960 or 61. But gradually, vinyl records took over and became the dominant media. And the combination of using tape to record on and vinyl to press records on meant that you could, you could make records more cheaply and easily. And again, it wasn't just the old recording equipment, which was heavy and cumbersome. The, record, the equipment used to manufacture records was also heavy and cumbersome and expensive. And only a big record company could afford to do that. In the 1950s, you could press records very cheaply because the equipment needed was much more simple and portable and easier to use. So, Was that the reason then that by the 50s and 60s, there's an explosion, as it were, of, of music? Exactly. Music so music. this led up to the, 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 the event you were talking about as an explosion, which is quite an accurate way to describe it because, as you mentioned in your introduction, in the night, by the night, end of the 1960s, there were hundreds of labels in Singapore Prior to these technical changes coming in, there were only a few big multinational companies. Very few local companies could afford the cost of pressing records or entering into the record market in a meaningful way. At most, they uh, actually hired EMI to press records for them and to record for them. So you might find some independent labels, but they didn't do the record manufacture 
and they didn't do the recording. That was done by a company which had those facilities. Each small record company couldn't afford to do that. So, Ross, it sounds like, you know, with cheaper equipment and, and cheaper uh, manufacturing processes, uh, it, it became easier for companies, as you say, to record local artists. Was there a downside to all of this? Well, everything has a downside, I think. And, and uh, yes, the answer is yes, because not only was it easier for small local companies to record and manufacture records locally, uh, but it was easier for basically criminal groups to cash in on that and produce what they called pirated records at the time. Usually these were purely copies of existing commercial recordings by both larger companies like EMI and even smaller companies, local companies. They, what they did is they cut out the cost of the recording process and simply pressed up copies of the exact same record, which they sometimes disguise with a new label and a slightly different cover or pretending to be some different record label. In fact, these record labels didn't exist. They were purely uh, an attempt to steal the rights to the record from the company that originally produced it. That's fascinating because I, I remember growing up as a kid and listening to pirate cassettes. Well, that's and I didn't realize thing. that, that there was yes, a pirate vinyl. That was a further development in the technology. Uh, by the end of the 60s, uh, tape was not only being used, well, originally it was only used in recording studios because it was expensive and you needed that expensive equipment to, I mean, it was, re- it was cheap relative to the previous way of recording, but it was still not something that anyone could afford. Very few people had tape recorders in the 1950s. But by the 1960s, as, as usual with most uh, technology, it becomes cheaper and more affordable and more widely disseminated. And by the 1960s, a lot more people did have tape recorders and, and uh, that meant they could play back tapes as well. And because tape is actually cheaper to manufacture than even a disc is, so, or a, a vinyl disc, I mean, uh, it was attractive to offer... Um, some records not only in disc form but also in tape cassette form. And this was a gradual process, but um, although it was not that common in the late 1960s, but by the mid-1970s, the technology had evolved even further and you had things like Walkmans, which came out, I think, in the late 1970s, but that totally revolutionised the way people listened to tapes because they didn't just need a machine they could play them on at home. They could actually, as the name suggests, walk around listening to music on a tape and this meant it was much more popular, much more accessible. And so by the late 1970s, tapes were actually taking over from pressed records on vinyl as the preferred medium, you could say, for, for recordings. And that's one of the reasons for the decline later of the record industry because uh, people were no longer buying records in the same way as they had for the previous 60 years or so. But we, we talked about the explosion of music in the 1960s, uh, the explosion of music labels in the 1960s in Singapore. And you know, I think a lot of people might say that that was you know, one of the heydays of Singapore music. And one of the local bands that was very popular at the time was a band called the Crescendos. 
and, and they were the first, I think, local band to be signed by an international label. You know, what, what impact did the crescendos have on the, on the record industry in Singapore? Interestingly, it was a rare case where you can point to one event as having had a very major effect on the way things developed. Prior to the recording of the crescendos, even EMI, although they were making a lot of recordings in Singapore, they basically stuck to the same genres that existed before the war. Cronchong uh, music and some variations on that, like Joggit and so on, uh, and uh, Chinese pop music. Uh, so they didn't make much effort to record the local bands because they felt that younger people who were interested in rock and roll and so on could just as easily listen to that kind of music on imported records by groups from the US or the UK. And those records were also imported into Singapore and sold here. There was no need for them to, they felt there was no need for them to record music that was freely available by more famous and therefore presumably better groups elsewhere. What happened when the crescendos recorded was their first record, Mr. Twister, actually outsold the American hit version of that song. And no one really had anticipated that. They were, uh, in fact, shocked that a local group would become so popular. And, uh, and of course, this event opened the eyes of the record companies to the fact that recording local pop groups or rock and roll bands or things like that, which wasn't a genre they'd bothered much with before, could be a profitable exercise. So once they realised that there was money to be made recording local pop bands, that's from then on, it didn't happen straight away, of course, it took a year or two for that to sink in, but um, since that was in the early 60s when uh, the crescendos were recording here, um, by the mid-60s, many local bands were starting to record. And from that point onwards, from the mid-60s to the end of the 60s and up until the early 70s, that's, that's when you got that explosion of interest in local music of all kinds, including pop music, was a big part of that, simply because the record labels, both the bigger ones and the small independent ones, could make money out of them. Would it be accurate to say that that was the golden age of the record industry in Singapore? Definitely. I think uh, the period 1965-1975 is it, the it golden like, age. It sounds like the confluence of, of things, right? You've got cheaper recording equipment, cheaper pressing, local bands. Exactly. It's wrong to pick on any one element of that and say, this is the reason. Most things are a combination of reasons. They're a complex combination of reasons. So yes, it was the fact that technology was making records uh, easy to produce, cheaper to sell. Uh, uh, there was also an explosion of musical activity in Singapore during the 1960s. There'd always been a lot of music done privately. I mean, uh, in those days, a lot of people played music at home or sang in choirs or they uh, performed in charity concerts. Uh, there was a whole range of outlets for people's desire to perform. Not much of it was recorded. But in the 1960s, when they realised that recording local artists could be profitable, that's when they started to look around at all these different groups, singers, different, different artists that were performing anyway, and say, why don't you make a record? 
So this, this is the origins of the golden age, so to speak, because all of these factors came together to result in a vastly increased amount of local recording. From the mid-60s onwards, the amount of recording done in the decade after, from that point onwards, would have been 10 or 20 or 50 times as uh, large as the amount of recording in Singapore done prior to that in the wow. previous decade, or, or rather the decade going back, say, to the mid-50s. You know, we, we talked about some of the re- technological changes, cheaper equipment, vinyl, tape. You know, what, what other you know, major technical, uh, technological changes were there in the recording industry? Well, a stereo recording came in at the end of the 60s, uh, or rather it was more widely available from the end of the 60s. It had existed in theory from the late 1950s, but most recordings up until the late 1960s were mono recordings. Mono, of course, is one channel. Everything was recorded on one channel. Uh, In the 1960s, uh, gradually, stereo recording became more popular, and by the end of the 1960s, virtually all recordings were made in stereo. And certainly, on as you went on into the 1970s, it just became the normal way of recording. So the record industry used this as a way of marketing. They were getting people excited about the fact they could now hear stereo recordings and encouraging people again to buy stereo equipment so they could hear that news new sound phenomena. It was hugely um, popular and exciting at that time. And this was another example of the record industry finding a way to market things to people so it encouraged them to buy new record players so they could hear stereo sound properly. And that meant that translated into buying more records. We talked about Singapore's golden age being about in the in the sixties and all that, but it, after that, you know, the, Singapore's music or record industry sort of declines. Why? Why did that happen? Well, once again, it's a, a very complex set of reasons for that. There's no one simple re- explanation. In fact, by the end of the nineteen seventies, only a very few of the ri- many original or smaller private labels that existed in Singapore were still active. Most of them had ceased because, um, as you mentioned, there was a decline in sales. And as far as the factors go, there's things like changes in taste in music. Uh, Disco came in, for example. People preferred to go out somewhere to dance in a discotheque. They didn't necessarily want to buy a record and listen to it at home. So... uh, People complained in newspaper articles which were published at that time that people would just stop buying records. They preferred to go out and see a band in a club or a nightclub or a, or a discotheque, as they had then. Um, of course, this had all, always happened, but it just seemed to be that it became more and more that people were less interested in buying records. Changes in taste like that have a, a, a big impact on what people are consuming and how they consume it. What about um, what, what what about technological change? I mean, I I know that you know, I, and as I mentioned earlier, I used to buy pirated cassette tapes. Did did music piracy have an impact as well? Well, it did. That was another factor. In fact, you're correct. Um, what happened is that the fact that pirates were, in effect, skimming off a lot of the profits of putting out a new record. 
even big record companies like EMI, and again, this is backed up by interviews with record company executives in the newspapers at that time. They talk about how they're doing less recording because they feel it's not really worth putting resources into doing a lot of recording since in many cases the profits are reduced substantially by the fact that any recording they put out is going to be pirated. So even even recording artists said the same thing. They said it's not worth putting out records because we put a lot of time and effort into doing that, but we don't make anything out of it because the pirates will skim off so much of the profit that we don't make much out of that record at all. Right, because everybody's just pirating the much cheaper pirated tape. This is another factor in the decline of the record industry. The, The record industry, even a major international company like EMI, complained often and frequently that their profits were being affected by this activity. So I, I fear that I'm responsible, not single-handedly, <laughs> but largely responsible for the, <laughs> the decline of Singapore's recording industry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so tell, tell us a bit about, um, uh, about, about yourself. You, know, you were previously a sound archivist with the National Film and Sound Archive of, of Australia, you know, what did your work there entail? Well, actually, it was fairly broad in scope. Uh, I did a lot of cataloguing of records in the NFSA collection, but I also produced reissues of recordings on CD. And I also, the, and the NFSA also published several of my discographies of Australian music. I, I, I uh, researched Australian popular music from the 1950s up to the end of the 60s because that period's always interested me because of the style and quality of the music. And uh, and so that's some examples that it, you know, the, working at a sound archive is not just pouring over piles of dusty old records. You can actually do things to make people aware of those recordings or even introduce re-releases of selected recordings to people might not otherwise uh, be able to hear. I have an important question. CD or vinyl? I'm a vinyl person. (laughs) Don't like CD. (laughs) But they play a part in promoting the older music. So I wouldn't say, you know, I'm totally against a CD re-release because I have produced them myself. I think they, they can be quite a valuable way of introducing people to music, but I hope they'll go back and listen to it on vinyl because the sound quality and sound experience is quite different. Um, Ross, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to to talk to us about this. Now we've come to the part of the podcast interview where we just ask very quick questions so that people can get an idea of the the person uh, who's being interviewed. So without thinking too much... Who would you consider is the most interesting person in audio his, Singapore's audio history? I've always been fascinated by a man called Tom Hemsley, who was an Englishman but came out to Singapore in uh, about 1910, was very important in the local industry. He's the one who first recorded P. Ramley and Poon Sao Kang. So you, you have to say that anyone that can perform a role of introducing two such famous artists must be an interesting person. I have been in contact with his family and looked at his photograph albums, for example, but his children don't know much about his career and he never left anything in writing, so I wish I could talk to someone like that. So, Ross, now, what are you reading these days? 
Well, I never read just one book at a time. Oh, okay. I usually, I'm one of those people that reads three or four books simultaneously and I dip in and out of them depending on not just my mood but what's suitable for that moment. Some things are nice to read after lunch when you're just having a nice glass of wine or something. Other books you read late at night when just before going to sleep. Complete a sentence. History is... Fascinating. Okay, good. Uh-huh. And um, Biblio Asia, our magazine, is... Fascinating. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ross, thank you very much uh, for, for joining us today on Biblio Asia Plus. Um, Ross's book is available um, at the National Library. And of course, um, it's also sold at all good bookstores around Singapore. Ross, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast and the BiblioAsia newsletter. Thank you for joining me on BiblioAsia Plus.